Uh, well, good morning again. We're working our way through the New Testament letter or epistle of Philippians. Today's passage is found for you on page 10 in your order of worship there. Or if you'd like to use the chair Bible there in front of you, the dark blue book, it's found on page 922 in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible with you at home, please take that one home with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. And if you're visiting with us today, welcome. We're glad that you're here. If you would, if you wouldn't mind, you can go to the back cover of the Order of Worship here. You can scan that QR code with your smartphone, and that will give you all sorts of information about our church. And if you want to at that point, you can give us information about yourself as well. And to our members and regular attenders, if you notice right before that, we have some uh, encouragement for you to download the Church Center app. Uh, this is the kind of the key to communication at our church now. You can go to the Android store or to the App Store and download that app. And once you download it, you can find our church in there. And all of our information is there. If you would like to check in your child for nursery, you can do it from that app. If you'd like to check into this service, just let us know you're here. You can do that. You can register for all the different events we talk about. Everything is on that app. Highly encourage you uh, to use that to stay uh, in touch with what, everything that's going on here in the body of Christ. So, with that in mind, let's get back to Philippians, right? So we've been walking through the book of Philippians together, this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to this church, this collection of Christians in the Greek or city of Philippi, a Roman colony. And one of the big themes of Philippi has been this idea of partnership together, that we are partners in the Holy Spirit with Christ, and that we are partners together in unity because of the gospel, and that Paul shows that the church in partnership is supposed to take the gospel forward to its culture and to its community. And we're finding out as we're going through this book that the Philippian church is not getting along. I know it's hard to believe, but sometimes Christians have a hard time getting along with other Christians. I know it happens in other churches, never here. And they had it happening in the Philippian church. There was self-interests, there was selfishness, there was people with their own agendas, and they were harming the unity and mission of the church. And so Paul has been exhorting them in chapter 2 to humility, telling them to, you know, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he's trying to get them to see how beautiful Jesus' humility was. And so he tells them, look, Jesus Christ laid aside his divinity, put on humanity, became one of us, and then he puts it this bluntly, Jesus went so far as to humble himself to death. And he gives this example, not just as something aspirational for them to shoot towards, but he also reminds them that because of their union with Christ, they own, they have this humility already. And so they can work this humility out practically, really. It's aspirational, but it's also actual because of the work of the Holy Spirit, that we're to work out this humility God has put into us. And it's right there that our text then picks up. So if you will, would you look with me now at Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 through 11. Again, it's found on page 10 in your order of worship, page 922 in the Pew Bible. <clears throat> this is God's Word. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now let's pray together. 
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have revealed Yourself to us. And as we come before Your revelation today, Lord, we ask that You would once again give us truth for our growth, for our transformation. May we see Jesus in His humiliation and then Jesus in His exaltation and be humbled and empowered to be more like Him. Pray that You would do this, Father, by Your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So to get our mind around this text, what I want to do is I actually want to start at the very end, that very last phrase where it says, to the glory of God the Father at the end of verse 11. What's going on here is this is actually one big sentence in the original Greek language, and it begins with therefore telling us what's going on, but it ends with kind of the motivation behind all of this. It's to the glory of God the Father. You know, we're a confessional denomination, and so we have this thing called the Westminster Catechism, the Westminster Longer Catechism, and the Westminster Confession of Faith, and those are our doctrinal standards, and the catechisms are a series of questions and answers to kind of help us understand our faith better. And our very first question in the Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? Or if you'll let me translate that King James language, what is the purpose of humanity? What are people for? And the answer is, humanity's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's the very first question because that's what it's all about, glorifying God. And that brings us right here, we see, into God's very purposes for Himself, that He has done all this for His glory. Everything we're looking at today it's gonna, that, we're, that we're seeing is going to be for the glory of God the Father. And that gets us to our theme for today, what everything is going to kind of orbit around, which is this idea, that the Father is glorified to elevate His worthy Son, ensuring His complete worship. So let's jump right in. The first thing we see here is that God is glorified in Jesus' victory. For us to understand this passage, we're going to have to go back to the very beginning. I mean way back. Back to this thing called creation, where God comes and God creates Adam, the first person. And theologians tell us when you look into the text and the, and the rest of the Old Testament that God entered into an agreement with Adam. We call this agreement the covenant of works. And it was basically, I mean, the shorthand was this, if you will obey what I say, I will give you life. If Adam perfectly obeyed, if he worked this covenant of works, he would be granted life for himself and for all who come after him in him. Well, if you know the story, or perhaps you just look around, Adam disobeyed. And instead of receiving the blessings of the covenant of works, Adam received the punishments of the covenant of works. Instead of life, he earned death for himself and for all his posterity. But God, in his mercy, initiated a second covenant. This time, not with Adam, but with the second person of the Trinity. A covenant of grace, where the shorthand would basically be, he came to the second person of the Trinity and said, if you're willing, I will let you be a second Adam and take another shot at the covenant of works on their behalf. And we saw from verses 5 through 8 last week that our Lord Jesus 
is that person. The second person of the Trinity was willing. And so he laid aside his divinity, put on humanity, and became fully God and fully man, two natures in one person, and was that redeemer. Jesus, as the second Adam, fully submitted to God's law as a human. He did take on the cursed death that the first Adam earned, and he was victorious over the grave in his resurrection. Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works, bringing grace to his people. And that's where we are at the end of verse 8. The covenant of works made with Adam is fulfilled by the life and death of Jesus Christ. The covenant of grace made with Christ is fulfilled by his obedience to God's law and his resurrection from the grave. That's what as preachers love to say every time they see one. That's what the therefore is there for. It's pointing back to all of that stuff that Jesus gets the reward for the covenant of grace. And one of those rewards is his exaltation in his humanity to be the king of kings, the Lord of lords, to sit at God's right hand forever, all to the glory of God the Father, because the Father is glorified to elevate his worthy Son, ensuring his worship. So God is glorified in Jesus' victory, and God is glorified in Jesus' exaltation. And now we get to jump into today's text. Look with me at verse 9. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the therefore means because Jesus has fulfilled the covenant of grace, because he was successful and faithful as the redeemer of God's people, now God has highly exalted him. Paul is trying to get us to understand the beauty of Jesus. Like I said last, last week, Paul is taking out this Jesus. He's polishing him up. He got, that, he, got, he got the spray of that new Savior smell all over him. And he's putting him in the showroom and saying, you want this, don't you? Look how attractive this is. Look how beautiful this is. Paul is actually stretching the Greek language here, trying so hard to get us to understand this. He takes the word exalted and he adds the word hyper to it. Anybody got a hyper child? Anybody was a hyper child, right? You know exactly what it means. It means the same thing in Greek and English. So he adds hyper to exalted and says, you've got the most super duper exalted thing ever. He's the exaltedest exalted thing that can be exalted. You can't get any more exalted than this. He's stretching the language trying to get us to see how crazy incredible this Jesus is. The humble suffering Jesus from last week is gone. Now we have the exalted Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, exalted above all. Oh, this is such a vital thing to grasp. For me in high school, my parents made me go to church with them. They became Christians. I did not, but they made me go, and so we were there all the time. I mean, I didn't know church was open that much, but we were there. So, and I had closed ears and a hard heart to the gospel. I've gone back and listened to sermons. The gospel was preached, and I just didn't hear it. But one of the things the Lord used to open up my ears and to melt my heart was I started getting this picture in my mind, much to my chagrin, to be candid, of this beautiful, exalted Jesus. I started to see him, one, as like real, two, as more than just some humble teacher, but as this actual exalted divine figure. And the other thing the Lord did is he really started to help me feel the weight of my sin. 
And so here I am as this high schooler, and I'm experiencing a word I can't even define yet. It, later I found out it's called angst, of uh, between like my sin and, and the Lord's glory, and I feel this tension, and all of a sudden I start to understand, oh, that's that wrath stuff they talk about, because this is what God deserves, this is all I can get, and this distance is called wrath. God is not happy with me. And I felt in danger. And I, didn't, I couldn't articulate it this way back then, but looking back, I, I, I literally fled to Jesus Christ for help to deliver me because I recognized he has got to pull me up. I can't pull him down to me. This picture of an exalted Lord, in other words, will humble us. It brings us to the end of our rope. We see we have nothing. We can't climb up to him. Thank God he climbed down to us to get us out of the pit. See, the beauty of the gospel is made real by his exaltation. Because only the life, death, and resurrection of that Jesus can save a sinner such as me and you. And when we recognize that, it brings humility because Jesus' glory humbles us so we can have the unity that Paul is trying to get this church to have. Because when we rally around Christ's glory, we stop seeking our own. And you know we do that, right? You know we seek our own glory. I'm going to get real personal here. You realize that weird internal compunction you have? Even if, like me, you've quit social media and don't have it anymore, it's still there. Every time you sit down for a meal at a nice restaurant, why do you have this desire to put a picture of it for people to see? Because you want glory. You want that like. You want that psychological payoff of people like your life. They think your life is great. We're, we're glory hounds. And it doesn't have to be social media. It can be any addiction. They're usually our seeking glory. See, but recognizes Jesus as king and his glory helps set us free from looking for our own glory. So Jesus is exalted and Paul gives us this beautiful picture. The next thing he shows us is that um, in the ancient world, we, we in a democracy, we don't get to see this. Hopefully we'll get to see this over in the UK in the next couple months when they have a coronation. But when kings are coronated, when they get exalted, they also get gifts. Jesus is given as a gift a name that is above every name. You ever had a change in your name? You ever know someone who has? How about a nickname? Anybody ever had a really cool nickname? How about people who go by their middle name? We just recently had one of our daughters tell us that she would like to go by her middle name now. Her first name is just too simple, apparently. And we're like, sure, whatever. You can go by your middle name. That's fine. Because it, it, it indicates something happening in the heart, right? It's not a superficial thing. It's significant. God came to this guy in the ancient Near East named Abram, changed his life, and changed his name. Abraham. He came to another guy named Jacob, changed his life, changed his name to Israel. Jesus came to a man named Simon, changed his life, changed his name to Peter. Jesus came to a guy named Saul, changed his life, changed his name to Paul. And at the resurrection, God the Father changed Jesus' life. And so he gives him a name that is above all names. Some of you might be bothered by that phrase, changed his life. That's a little weird. I know. Here, here's, here's a way to think about it. The new experiences that got to happen there. 
So this is hard. Stick with me. So we've got Jesus. He's fully God and he's fully man. And if the Bible is true, he's one person, two natures. And in that nature as the God-man, he got to experience things that were both familiar and new. Here's what I mean by that. The second person of the Trinity, the exalted son, was exalted. He knew what exaltation was like. Had no experience of humiliation. But the God-man got to experience both. Humanity, very familiar with humiliation, not so much exaltation. In Jesus' exaltation, humanity gets to taste something new. This God-man has familiar and he has new and this significant change in his life gives him a new name, a name that is above all names. So he's super duper exalted. He's the most exalting est person. He's also the namiest person. No one else has a name like this. And the next gift that he gets, and this one will mess you up if you actually hear this, he gets his people as his special possession, as a reward for his faithfulness, a coronation gift of, given to Jesus is his people. Look with me at some verses from the book of John. I could go many places, but there's three verses in the book of John. Make it very simple right here. First, Jesus praying says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Then again, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me. Again, a couple verses later, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those whom you have given me. Christians, we are the gift that Jesus gets for his faithful work. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, there's part of your heart right now that is absolutely trying to deny that, right? It's bringing up your sin, it's bringing up your failures, it's bringing up your superficiality, it's bringing up your lack of devotional time, it's bringing up your web history, and it's telling you, you are no way a gift to Jesus, whatever. But the Bible says you are. That in Jesus, you're part of the gift, you're part of the motivation that he used to go to the cross. Jesus has that much affection for you. Here's how I, maybe I can prove this. I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna go to anthropology. You ready? Here we go. So when you have something that is absolutely ancient and absolutely cross-cultural, what you have there is not a stereotype, you have an archetype. And you can go to all sorts of cultures, not just Western culture, but all sorts of cultures, and you will find that there is this repeated story of a princess or an important female character, usually a princess, who is taken by a monster. In Western culture, it was a dragon. Asian culture, it was often a dragon. And she's rescued at great cost by the prince who slays the dragon. And then they get married and then they live happily ever after. And that is hardwired into the DNA of our species because that is the nature of our reality. If the Bible is true, that is the foundational reality on which every other reality is built that we were taken and trapped by a horrible monster. And at great price to himself, 
the prince of all life, the Lord Jesus, rescued us, slayed the dragon, promises to marry us, and we do get to live happily ever after. That's our story. That's humanity's story. And that grace brings unity and partnership to the church. This church full of selfishness can get out of that by looking at this humble, exalted, gracious Savior because the Father is glorified to elevate His worthy Son, ensuring His complete worship. So God's glorified in Jesus' victory. God's glorified in Jesus' exaltation. And finally, we see that God is glorified in Jesus' worship. Look with me at verses 10 through 11. It says this, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you have a posture of reverence, and you have a verbal confession of truth. And whenever you have those two things together, kids, you have worship is what's going on here. This is the unabashed worship of Jesus Christ by all creation. Jesus is worshiped and exalted in his humanity, and he receives it. And the Father is glorified, not offended in it. Don't just let that statement pass you by. If you're, if you're a student of the, of the Bible, you know that there are these times when God sends angelic creatures to his people to mess them up, and they have this very natural reaction is they want to worship them. And every single time it happens, the messenger immediately gets almost offended and afraid. No, no, do not worship me. I'm a servant just like you. Every single time, with the only exception being the few times we see it happen to Jesus. He never stops it, and he accepts it. That's incredible to think about. Here's what's even more crazy to think about. This happened a mere, at this point in Philippians, most likely we're talking 38-ish years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, I know there's like liberal scholars out there like, well, you know, the uh, ancient church didn't invent the deity of Jesus until sometime in the third century. Whatever, 38 years, Paul is right here saying it. And he doesn't try to do it with a logical syllogism. He doesn't footnote any Old Testament. He just says it as in like, you should know this. This is 101 stuff. 38 years after the death and resurrection, the church is teaching this is the fundamental fact of Christianity, that Jesus is divine. Which brings up some questions. Let's own that there are some weird things in Christianity, right? Like, you know, the resurrection is weird. Typically, once the Krebs cycle stops, typically once respiration stops, typically once, you know, things die, they don't start back up again. And yet, fundamental to Christianity is a bodily historical resurrection of Jesus. So much so, Paul later says, if Jesus has not been raised, you're still in your sins and your faith is in vain. It's that fundamental. There's also another weird thing about Christianity, right? This thing called the Trinity. It's not three gods. No, it's, it's one God. Three persons in the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're equal in power, equal. And it's weird. People love to point that out. It's weird. My favorite is people like, well, you know, the word Trinity doesn't appear in Scripture. Like, you know, yeah. Your mom doesn't either, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I wouldn't say that now, but I actually have been known to say that because, you know, if you have no case, you go for snark, right? So anyway, all right. So 
But the idea of the Trinity is all over the Scriptures. And here is one of those places. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he calls himself. He was a very strict monotheistic Jew. I mean, he was like, if you'll let me, if you'll let me translate classes in the way we see the world, he was one of those guys walking around with the red hat that said, make Jerusalem great again. He was that hardcore into this stuff. He knew what was right and what was wrong. And in Jewish worship at the time, you used the Psalms in worship. And the very last words of the very last Psalm call all of creation to bow and worship. Look with me at Psalm 150 verse 6. It says this, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Just as a quick aside, this is for free. The, the uh, plural imperative there, praise, is hallelujah. And the shortened word for Lord is yah. So you put those together, and what do you get? Hallelujah. So you're, little, you're literally saying in Hebrew, praise the Lord. See, now you know. Maybe you'll win a Bible trivia at some point for that. So Paul is basically grabbing this verse as a faithful monotheistic Jew, and he's applying it to this human Jesus a mere 38 years after his death, saying all of creation is going to worship Jesus, and he's worth it. He receives it, and God is glorified, not offended in it, which means Jesus is somehow divine. It's beautiful. See, and Christians, those of us who've been forgiven by Jesus, those of us who've been united to him by faith and had our eyes opened, we see this beautiful divine Jesus and we do worship him because he is worthy. But we also know that many, perhaps most of the people on earth don't. And that makes Christian humility hard because it's before them most of all that we need to be humble. And when you get right down to it, we just don't want to. <laughs> but look at the encouragement here. The text tells us that one day, someday, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, in a post-Christian culture like ours, where those pushing idolatry and, and immorality and infanticide and persecution and just all sorts of, of craziness how encouraging is it to know that one day, someday, they will bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either in joyful worship or in conquered submission. You see, it's Jew or Gentile, Philippian or American, the simplest, most ancient confession of faith, the basic fundamental tenet of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's right here in this text. And if you can't say Jesus Christ is Lord, you're not a Christian. He's not just a great teacher. He's not a moral leader. He is the exalted King of Kings, somehow connected to the Old Testament Jehovah or Yahweh, however you want to translate that term. That's what the New Testament word Lord all means. You're saying Jesus is that person. It's the fundamental if you can't do it, the Bible says you're not a Christian. And in case you think that's harsh, look with me at Romans chapter 10, verse 9. The same apostle Paul says that he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised it from the dead, you will be saved. See, Paul is laying before these Philippians here the question, what do you make of Jesus? 
Paul's like, I don't care about your case against her or his case against him or who got their feelings hurt. I don't care about any of that. What do you say about Jesus? Is he the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords? And do you glorify him as it brings glory to the Father? That's what matters. This other stuff will work itself out if we get that in place because the Father is glorified to elevate his worthy Son, ensuring his complete worship. All right, let's wrap this up. So here's the deal. Either Jesus is the exalted Lord of all creation, including the Lord of your life, or you will live as if you are. Either Jesus is the exalted and worthy of worship, or we exalt ourselves and try to seek our worship. See, we bring glory to God when we recognize His gospel that it was his idea and his love to save a people for himself by means of his son, the Redeemer. And we see how sinful and selfish that we are, that we needed this kind of rescue, and how incredible the love it is for us that he left his exaltedness to come down to humiliation, humbling himself to death to pay the penalty for our sins, to purchase our place in God's family. See, in the gospel, we realize that we've been purchased by the blood of the king of kings, and it, it, it messes us up. It humbles us. That really? You had to do that for me. But then the, we see that he wanted to do it because we were actually his reward. That raises us up. It's like no one's ever thought that highly of me before. And we recognize that the wrath that we earned every day from a God the Bible says experiences anger every day that that was all placed on his son and poured out so he's not mad at us for our sins it messes us up doesn't it see but in that gospel we're made humble and we can be a unified church that puts up with the junk other people do because our junk's even bigger oh do you want to be part of a church like that and then repent of your selfishness Look to the exalted Jesus and repent of your seeking exaltation at every opportunity and instead place your faith and trust in the resurrected Lord. He will make you his cherished bride. You'll worship him as the king of kings and you'll have that humility that we all want. In other words, if you want this, you repent and you believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that this picture of the exalted Jesus, that your Son, exalted above all creation, given a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray that that exalted picture, Lord, will break our hard, arrogant hearts we pray, Lord, that in that humility we will worship you anew. Letting go of our selfishness, letting go of our pride so that we could be a unified church in partnership with you. We pray, Lord, that you would do this for, for us, for those of us who know you already, that you would give us this aspirational picture of Jesus, but that you would also empower us by your Spirit to be like Jesus. And Lord, we ask for those here today who don't know you, that they would be undone by this picture of the exalted Lord Jesus and that you would be true to your promise to draw all people to yourself 
So even now, Lord, as we prayed, will you build your church, let your kingdom come and your will be done by causing many to have new life, to confess, and to believe on Christ. I pray you would do this, Father, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.